Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Well, Hawaii has had the legislative approval for medical aid in dying for the last several years. We are not the first state to do so, but we certainly have learned from some of those who preceded us in approving these measures. And we have had residents here locally in Hawaii who have taken advantage of the fact that this particular bill has enabled them to have a peaceful end to what might otherwise have been a significant amount of suffering. Tonight, I am pleased to be discussing with Samantha Trad. She is the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices, some of the history behind the bill, and then some of the new legislative efforts that have taken place to address some of the difficulties that occurred with the enactment of this and some of the challenges that all of the providers have had to face. So thank you for joining me this evening, Samantha. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the medical aid in dying bill. You worked really hard with many real key stakeholders here in the islands to try and help pass this because it was something that we saw was a compassionate way to assist patients in end-of-life care. How long have we had this bill, and, and what have what is the history of how it's gone so far? Well, it took about 20 years to pass the initial bill, the bill is modeled after Oregon's bill. Oregon has had the, had the option of medical aid in dying for almost 25 years now. And the bill passed in 2018. Um, we had about nine months to get ready for the law to go into effect, which took place on January 1st, 2019. So we have now had the option of medical aid in dying in Hawaii for three years. What's interesting is Hawaii has the most difficult law of all the states that have authorized medical aid in dying to access. And we've learned a lot over the years since Oregon has passed medical aid in dying, and we've learned a lot in Hawaii as well. One of the biggest problems is finding a provider to support a a patient in the option of medical aid in dying. And there's a lot of reasons for this. It, It always takes a while usually when a state first authorizes medical aid in dying for physicians to come around Um, A lot of physicians aren't trained at all on end-of-life, let alone medical aid and dying. And so there's this perception that it's kind of, you know, a strange thing for a doctor to write a prescription for an aid and dying medication. But what, what we found, and actually the University of Colorado just published a study on this, that Um, doctors who do support patients in medical aid and dying find it incredibly fulfilling. Because the, the thing that people don't always realize is that in order to qualify, you have to be imminently dying. So these are people who are going to die no matter what. They've, they most likely have tried everything to extend their life, but when it's clear that their terminal illness is going to run its course, they want the option of medical aid and dying so that they don't have to suffer. And when a doctor is able to give a patient that that compassionate end-of-life experience, it can be really beautiful. Um, And so in Hawaii, especially with the growing physician shortage, uh, the Department of Health has recommended that advanced practice registered nurses be allowed to support patients in the option of medical aid and dying. In fact, they really should have been able to from day one. It's already within the scope of practice for uh, advanced practice registered nurses, 
but the way the law was written defined attending provider, um, and I'll explain it in a little, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little, it gets a little wonky, but the, the basic fact is that um, it's already within the scope of practice for, for APRNs. And so for the last three years, we've actually been trying to get a bill through, excuse me, the last two years, we've been trying to get a bill through to amend the law to allow APRNs to support patients in the, in the many roles um, that a patient needs support. So um, you want me to walk you through the, the cliff notes of the steps to access the law, Kathy? Well, I think that would be good because I remember in the beginning there was sort of this this checklist. You have to do all these different things. Patients have to ask. They have to put it in writing. They have to pass all these evaluations. And I don't think people remember how complicated it was. So if 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 a patient were coming to me and were at the end of life, you know, I never have a problem referring people to hospice or, or referring them to, to finding out if palliative care is available for them. And this is just another approach that someone might choose to take. So if, so, if a patient said to me tomorrow, this is what I want to do, what are the steps that I would need to take? Because I think part of the idea of opening this up to having other practitioners participate in this is recognizing that it takes a team effort. It's not just one person. And so adding members to that team or making more folks eligible eligible really makes sense. So walk me mm-hmm. through it as if somebody came to me tomorrow. What what were the steps that I was supposed to be taking imminently when they did that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first step is when a patient first asks about medical aid and dying, this counts as what is called in the law their first oral request. And the medical provider who they make the first request to um, has a series of questions that they actually have to ask the patient. It's really a great opportunity to talk about end of life with the patient because medical aid and dying may not be right for the patient, but a lot of patients don't know about palliative care options. They may not understand what hospice is. And so having this option kind of gives patients a language to, to just start expressing the fact that maybe they're, you know, they're worried about the course their terminal illness may take them. And so um, the, the first providers, so a patient has to see two different um, providers. Right now, only physicians can be seen, and we're hoping to change that. But right now, they have to see at least two different physicians who are qualified to diagnose them with a terminal illness and assess them with a six-month prognosis as well as a mental health examination. And then they actually do have to see a third provider to assess their mental health to make sure that they understand the decision they're making, that they're not suffering from any kind of advanced dementia um, or uh, undertreated depression. Um, So they have to see all of these different providers. And the, the main provider who's going to end up writing the prescription, they have to have two different consultations with. And those two different consultations right now have to be separated by a mandatory minimum 20-day waiting period. So imagine that you're, you're terminally ill. Let's say you've tried everything to try to extend your life. And when it's clear that your, your quality of life is diminished, you're imminently dying. So you go to your doctor and you say, I want the option of medical aid and dying. Yeah, you may not have 20 well, first days. Of all, yeah. What? You may not have 20 days. Exactly. And in fact, most people don't because most people don't want to die. And so they wait till the last possible minute to request medical aid in dying. So by the time they request it, it's too late. 
And another huge problem is a lot of the times the, the doctor that they request aid in dying from may not support them in it. And there's a few reasons for this. The, the study that the University of Colorado did found that many physicians find that there's way too much paperwork. It's really time-consuming to support a patient in the option of medical aid in dying. Um, they might work at a facility that doesn't allow um, doctors to practice. In fact, right now, there, there isn't any hospice in all of Hawaii that allows their um, doctors to act as the main prescribing physician. And so, you know, if they're in that situation, in fact, we just got a call today from a patient in Maui whose doctors won't support this patient. And so they're desperate. They need to find someone who can support them. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, it's hard to get doctor's appointments. And so it's so essential that advanced practice registered nurses be able to support patients in this option. They already have it within their scope of practice to support patients to act as the, the main prescribing provider, um, as well as the other two roles we talked about, the, the second consulting provider and the mental health um, provider, um, depending on their, you know, their education. So the way the law is written is, you know, they, they do have to be qualified to do this. Um, but many APRNs are. In fact, we counted there's about 700 APRNs who would be able to support patients in the option of medical aid and dying. Wow. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices, Samantha Trad, about what are some of these rules and what are ways that we can overcome that by creating a team approach and keeping all members of the team actively engaged in trying to help assist patients in this process. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I'm talking with Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices, Samantha Trad, about some of the difficulties that we've experienced in the state with accessing medical aid in dying. And right before the break, we talked about the first oral request. If a patient came to me tomorrow and said they wanted to access this particular element of their care, then they would come to my office and be required by me to have an oral request and then 20 days before we could discuss it again and have another request. We also talked about other people that would be involved in this and we need to have some other Providers that are able to certify that a patient has met the criteria of six months or less of expected lifetime. And we talked about some of the different mental health criteria qualifications. So, Samantha, getting back to our to our discussion, you mentioned that, you know, we'd have to have 20 days in between the two requests that would come for accessing medical aid and dying. And within that 20-day time frame, is that when an individual would start getting the qualification based on the second physician agreeing and also uh, having the mental health evaluation? Yes, they can, they can absolutely do that, um, you know, if they're able to get all those appointments in time. Um, I will say, you know, there are some healthcare systems like Hawaii Pacific Health and Kaiser who have done a really great job of, of um, giving patients patient navigators to help them so that they can get through this 17-step process during the 20 days. But um, 
both of these health systems that are just so excellent at doing patient-directed care at end of life have found that a significant number of their patients die during that mandatory minimum waiting period. In fact, most die around day five. Um, and so that's why there's a bill in the legislature right now that would allow the main prescribing provider the ability to waive the waiting period entirely if the patient was unlikely to survive this. And this is something we're seeing in other states. So in Oregon, they've already made this amendment a few years ago, um, and we've actually seen a big uptick in the number of patients who've now been able to access the law. In California last year, they just amended their 15-day waiting period to 48 hours. So now all patients only have a minimum 48 hours they have to wait. Um, and in New Mexico, which just recently authorized medical aid in dying last year, they also have a 48-hour waiting period. And um, the reason is there's, there's a lot of data that we have now that shows that that waiting period is really just a suffering period. It's not a safeguard. You know, when a patient asks for medical aid in dying, it's something that they've thought a lot about, and they still have to request it two more times. They have to submit a written request. The, the waiting period is completely unnecessary. And we hear from patients, even the ones who survive the waiting period, that it's a time filled with anxiety, not knowing if they're going to qualify. And, um, you know, again, it's just, it's, it's completely unnecessary. So we're very hopeful that, that the bill in the legislature right now, HB 1823, which would give the prescribing provider the ability to waive the period um, and also reduces the waiting period from 20 down to 15 days, um, would, would hugely help patients be able to actually access the law the way that it's intended. So you mentioned that there's a requirement for a second request and a written request and 17 steps to this process, which is fairly complicated. So when do those things take place? So if someone were to see me tomorrow and that is their first oral request, they make an appointment 20 days later or maybe 15 days later if, if we can pass some of these amendments. And then what do they do at that point? Is that a second oral request? Is that a written request? What would happen at that point? So they would hopefully make their, their second appointment for their second oral request. And then during that waiting period, um, usually the, the main prescribing provider helps them find a second consulting provider. Um, so then they would make an appointment with a second provider um, who would evaluate them um, and make sure that they are you know, eligible for the law. Um, and then also during that waiting period, they would right now need to find a psychologist, psychiatrist, or social worker who could do a mental health assessment to make sure that they're, like I said, mentally capable um, and not suffering from under-treatment of depression. Um, in fact, the bill in the legislature would expand this to include um, uh, other therapists and APRNs who are qualified to be able to um, do the mental health assessment. And during this time, they also have a written request that needs to be signed by two different qualified witnesses. And the two different witnesses have a, a series of um, qualifications they need to meet. They need to prove that, you know, at least one of them isn't up for an inheritance. At least one of them isn't part of the medical providing team um, supporting the patient in medical aid and dying. And um, the purpose of this is to show that there's no um, coercion or abuse going on. And in fact, in, you know, nearly 25 years of having medical aid and dying in 11 states that have authorized it, there's never been a single incident of coercion or abuse. Um, so these are all, you know, safeguards, part of that, the 17 steps to accessing the law. 
Um, and, you know, we include in those steps just, you know, making the appointment, going to the appointment. Uh, and anyone who's tried to make an appointment recently knows that, you know, it can be really difficult. So um, it depends on where, you know, where they're at, too, what healthcare system they're at, maybe what hospice they're they're enrolled in. And we encourage all patients who are um, who want the option of medical aid and dying to enroll in hospice. Hospice can be such an incredibly great service at the end of life, both for the patient and the family. Um, so we encourage patients to do that. So then they go to their second oral request. Um, if they're still eligible, then the prescribing provider, again, walks them through a series of questions, encourages them of things like, you know, don't take your medication in public. You should have somebody with you when you take it. Then the prescribing provider writes the, pres- or writes the prescription, and then it has to be filled, which can take an additional 7 to 14 days depending on where they're going to fill the prescription. Um, and we do actually have a list of um, pharmacies where medical aid and dying prescriptions can be filled if any medical providers ever need help finding a pharmacy. And then they can get their medication. Um, and then when they're ready, they can take the medication to peacefully end their suffering. And, you know, I, I think about John Radcliffe, who really pioneered this, this original law. Um, it took him, it was hard for him to get through the 17 steps. And he, he knew everybody um, in the medical provider world from working on this bill for so long. And um, thankfully, he actually outlived his six-month prognosis and just held on to his medication. And then um, last August, you know, with his closest friends and loved ones around him, was able to to go out on his terms and peacefully end his suffering in a very beautiful way that helped his his family grieve and um, was really you know was really special for him in the way that he wanted to go um, through a law that he fought very hard for. Well, and that brings up a couple of the questions that some folks may have, which include. Where does this fit with hospice? And as you mentioned earlier, particularly I know in Oregon, they saw such an increase in the number of patients who accessed hospice because they could do that in addition to. It wasn't excluding accessing medical aid and dying. It was also in addition to accessing that. So that there is this increase in the number of patients who might access those hospice services, which are wonderful, not just for the individual, but also for the family. So that there are some things that the staff there can do to help with family members through the whole entire grieving process that really can make it a much easier time for everyone involved. You also mentioned that in addition, the, there's there could be an opportunity to get the prescription and that itself could be difficult. That could take another seven or 14 days. So there are some resources available to help providers who need to write prescriptions to know which pharmacies may have that eligible and available for them. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned that there's an effort to allow, within the scope of practice, APRNs to be able to take part in this. And that sounds like it is within the scope of their license and the scope of their practice and something that it almost seems odd that it was excluded. Yes. Um, And actually, uh, interestingly enough, physician assistance was added in the House Health Committee a few weeks ago and um, just passed the House CPC Committee. So in the House bill... Physician assistants have also been added to be able to act as um, providers for patients seeking medical aid and dying. And physician assistants do need to have um, a physician sign off on um, their work. But I think this will still also help 
um, expand the number of providers who are able to support patients in this. You know, it can be difficult for for everyone to talk about death, but also lawmakers too. You know, I think there's a lot of fear surrounding this that's really not necessary. And, um, you know, Diane Rehm always says that people are one bad death away from supporting medical aid and dying. And so I think the reason the original bill excluded advanced practice registered nurses was just this, this fear that wasn't, you know, necessarily grounded. And, you know, I think they, that people just had good intentions. They wanted to make sure that people were safe and, um, what we found is that, you know, this law works well for the people who can access it, but we hear so many reports from people who can't. And again, there's never been an incident of coercion or abuse. Um, advanced practice registered nurses actually, their scope of practice changes depending on, you know, what state they're certified in. And Hawaii has been one of the, the greatest states to really empower um, APRNs and um, they, they're able to you know, I know APRNs who have PhDs and even MDs, and um, they have a lot of great expertise and really are well-prepared to support patients in medical aid and dying. Uh, New Mexico actually allows both advanced practice registered nurses and physician assistants to support patients in the option of medical aid and dying. Their law is relatively new. It just went into effect in June. Um, but we're seeing that, you know, it's really helping people support the law, um, or not the law, but support patients in accessing the law. And I think nurse practitioners, you know, they tend to have better training on end of life um, sometimes than, than physicians do. Not always, you know, it depends where they go to school, but um, I, you know, I think about Dr. Charlotte Sharfin, she's a physician on the big island and, you know, she's, she's testified and shared in the media that that her own doctor is an advanced practice registered nurse. And on the big island, you know, APRNs have really been able to help out uh, with the physician shortage. So it just makes sense. You know, it's time to remove that barrier, allow APRNs to practice within their scope as they should be able to, and physician assistance as well, um, especially during this pandemic and with the physician shortage, you know, there's no reason that a person shouldn't be able to get the care that they, that they want. Um, from a medical provider who's qualified to support them. So we're really hopeful that, that this bill will pass this year. Um, like I said, we get calls all the time from people, especially on the neighbor islands who aren't able to access the law, and even in Honolulu sometimes. And, you know, there are healthcare systems that let their doctors practice medical aid and dying, but, you know, if you go to a healthcare system where your doctor doesn't support it and they don't refer you to a patient who will support you in medical aid and dying, a patient can get totally lost. They don't know where to go, who to call. Um, so it's really important to expand the number of qualified providers who can support patients in medical aid and dying. And if anyone's interested in helping us um, lobby this bill, there, there are twin bills. Um, HB 1823 is um, the House bill. It actually just passed the CPC committee uh, not too long, about an hour ago, um, and there's a Senate bill to SB um, 2680. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Samantha Trad, Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices, about where we're looking at moving towards next. What are some of the challenges that are still there, and what might we be able to do to address those? We'll be right back. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we have Samantha Trad for the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices, and we're talking today about the next step with medical aid in dying. And at the top of the show, we talked about the fact we've had this available in Hawaii since 2019, and as we look to making some amendments to the legislation that was passed, there are certain parameters that we may need to take another look at and figure out if there's ways to expand our care team and ways we can make it easier for patients to access this when appropriate. Now, right before the break, uh, we talked, Samantha, about what's going on with the ability of physician assistants and advanced practicing registered nurses to be able to be the providers necessary to certify patients who need to have this certification completed in a certain time frame and also potentially be the ones to prescribe the medication. What challenges do we still have with our current way that this can be accessed and what are the next steps in addressing some of those? That's a great question. Um, You know, we talked about fear a little bit in the last segment and there are still some healthcare systems and hospices who don't let their doctors practice medical aid in dying. And any doctor can opt out. You know, if they don't feel comfortable supporting a patient, they, they don't have to support them. Um, but, for example, you know, a year ago um, yesterday, actually, uh, the Herald Tribune on the Big Island ran a really interesting story about um, Hilo Medical Center and the, the hospice there in Hilo. And both are, are, you know, secular. They're not Catholic. We know that um, Catholic facilities like um, Dignity Health, you know, will never allow their medical providers to support patients in medical aid and dying because Catholics are very clear, the Catholic Church is very clear that they um, don't support this end-of-life option, although we found that Catholics poll the same as everybody else. The vast majority support the option. So um, unfortunately, though, there are um, physicians and other medical providers at at these facilities that want to be able to support patients in the option of medical aid and dying, but if their employer says they cannot do it, then there's not a whole lot they can do, you know? And so um, we're really hopeful. We, we try to do a lot of education and outreach and just, you know, explaining to the people who run these hospices and healthcare systems that there's there's nothing really to, to fear, that the reason we have the laws to make sure that everybody's protected there are many safeguards in place. Like I said, there's that 17-step process. Um, and so we really encourage them. You know, they don't have to support the option of medical aid and dying. We just encourage them to have an engaged, neutral policy. Just be neutral. So if a medical provider wants to support a patient in medical aid and dying, they have that freedom to do so. And um, we call it engaged. An engaged, neutral policy means that they have a referral system. So if a patient goes to a provider who doesn't want to do it, doesn't feel comfortable, they will refer them to someone who will internally so that the patient it doesn't fall through the cracks, essentially. And so that's a, that's a large part of our work. We do a lot of clinical education for medical providers. Um, we've, uh, done, um, we've, we've supported, uh, medical providers in doing grand rounds. We have a lot of resources that we're always happy to to help. In fact, um, there's a lot of doctors who now do trainings in Hawaii because they have three years under their belt experience of supporting patients in medical aid and dying. So they're training other doctors and nurses and social workers and, um, other medical providers to be able to support patients. 
Well, it certainly sounds like we have partners in the legislature and partners in our advanced practicing providers and the folks who are really willing to step up and help patients achieve the access that they need to support medical aid in dying. I want to thank you, Samantha Trad, Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. And we will continue to share your expertise with us and share this with our listeners. So if you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. Thank you.